Wouldn't it be great if you knew how to deal with any situation by looking at similar situations or people who have gone through similar things and had principles that you could follow that would stand the test of the time regardless of who you are and where you came from? Well, today's guest is definitely one of the most interesting guests we've had on the show and he will show you how to do exactly that. Hi, my name is Vindya V. This is Art of the Extraordinary, the podcast for those of you who's ready to play a much bigger game and leave an extraordinary legacy behind. I'm glad you're here and it's time to make your quantum leap. Today, our guest is John Vespasin, who is the author of 10 books about rational living, including Consistency, The Key to Permanent Stress Relief, and Unbecoming Unbreakable. He has lived in Germany, Italy, France, Spain, and the Netherlands. His books combine his passion for history, investing, and personal development. The purpose of his work, as he say, is to draw practical lessons from history and learn from the wisdom accumulated in centuries of human experience. And today he joins us on the show to talk about his newest book, Undisrupted, How Highly Effective People Deal with Disruptions. John, welcome to Art of the Extraordinary. It is so great having you on the show. Thanks, Vinya. Uh, thanks for having me on. Now, for the folks in our audience who do not know about your work and who's not familiar with how far you've come, can you please give us a brief introduction and a brief overview of what you do and about this new book? I've been writing books now for 11 years, uh, 10 years and a half. I write roughly one book per year. The purpose of my work is to combine my interest, which is a very strong interest in history, personal development, personal finance. So I produce a a breed of book, which is quite unusual. What I do is to go through hundreds of biographies, hundreds of stories from different centuries, and to try to extract in each book practical wisdom that we can use in the 21st century. So this is what I've been doing now for 11 years. Most of my readers are in the US, UK, Australia, but also in other countries. What's the reason behind writing this book? Yeah, the book started about uh, three years ago. When I was reading a biography, I found it very intriguing. It's a biography of an industrialist from the 19th century. His name was Sava Mamontov. He was a Russian manager. And he became very wealthy in his uh, 1940s, I'm sorry, in his 40s. He was a celebrity in Russia, in the Eastern countries. He had a huge house in Moscow, a huge art collection. Within a few years, he destroyed his life completely. He lost everything. He was prosecuted. He almost went to jail. Eventually, he didn't go to jail, but he spent the last 15 years of his life in total poverty. Even his friends refused to talk to him anymore. He was uh, ostracized and he destroyed his life. Within a few years, I found the story very intriguing because Mamontov was highly educated. He was a very experienced manager. He was very successful. He had traveled to different countries. So he was really a very clever man. He uh, made a series of mistakes that I found very intriguing. So this gave me the idea of the book. How is it possible that people who are doing very well, who have been developing a large experience in their field, make these kind of mistakes? And you find in history many examples of people who really destroy their lives. And what I've done is to go through through many uh, stories, through many biographies, to try to extract the principles 
that prevent these kind of situations and also to show how you can deal with adversity, with mistakes, with disruptions. The book is about disruptions in your personal finances, in your career, and also in your health. Right. So the book itself is for not for a particular group of people, but anybody who wants to be successful, whether that's business or career or in finances, to learn lessons from the past, from our history, and take that and basically not make the same mistakes again. Yeah, that's the idea. It is absolutely not self-evident because when we go through the stories and we go through the principles, you will see that most of them are counterintuitive. What you find in the stories of people who really make huge mistakes and they lose everything, sometimes they lose their health, sometimes even they die, is that they tend to improvise. And this is, I think, one of the not to do when you're facing problems, when you're facing adversity. We tend to do things that we've never done before because we panic, we become very upset, we become highly emotional, and then we start to improvise. And this is absolutely the worst thing you can do because you will make mistake after mistake. Precisely in situations of danger, when you're facing an important threat, the last thing you want to do is to experiment. You want to rely on things, on people, on skills, on assets that you already possess. And you want to basically go back to a familiar area that you control because this will make you much stronger than if you start to improvise. Mm. Something that you say is that, just quoting you, if you want to make good decisions, you have to look at the big picture and learn from the wisdom accumulated in centuries of human experience. So in this book, how do you address that and what do you bring to the table with it? Well, let me just give you an example. One of the principles that I present in the book is how to rely on your strengths. And the principle was actually discovered in the 19th century. It was a paleontologist, his name was Kowalewski, who actually came up with the idea that people become stronger and actually all animals, all creatures, living beings, they become stronger thanks to disruption. It is precisely the contrary of what you can expect because as human beings, we tend to like things that are comfortable. They have a sense of continuity. We want to run our business or our lives without disruptions. But it is precisely the contrary what makes people stronger and clever. And Kowalewski solved in the 19th century a riddle that nobody knew how to solve. And this is the following. You will find uh, in museums in the U.S. and also in Australia, by the way, you find in museums fossils of small horses. Very small. They are the size of a cat. In the 19th century, nobody could figure out how these very small horses actually grew through the centuries, through thousands of years. How do they grow into what we know today as horses that are quite big, very, very strong and very, very fast? And actually, in the 19th century, people thought there were two different species, that it was impossible for such a small horse to become what we know today. And Kowalewski came up with an explanation, which by now everybody believes to be true. And it's the following. Now, these small horses, they were living in the woods, they were eating blades, they were well protected by the vegetation, but eventually the weather, the climate on the earth changed and the trees started to grow very high and the horses could not feed anymore. So they have to find a different type of food. So they started to go out of the woods into the prairie. And it was very dangerous because there were big cats trying to eat the horses. They have to run. And eventually through generations, the horses that could run faster, they started to grow. 
because of the development of the muscles. So after a few generations, they gain a couple of centimeters. They had more children and the horses that were slower, they were easily caught by the cats, by the predators. So after a thousand years, they started to gain a little bit of weight, a little bit of speed. And eventually, through thousands thousands of years, they started to become what we know today as horses. So Kowalewski came up with the idea that what makes animals, generations of creatures, what make them become better and to become stronger is disruptions. And the key to reacting successfully to disruptions is to rely on something you already have. And this is why the horses, they relied on their strength, they relied on their speed, and they just pushed it further, generation after generation, they became a little bit better, a little bit faster, a little bit bigger. And this is the perfect recipe for human beings to react to disruptions. If you do something you never done before, you will fail. But if you do like these little horses that basically they rely on assets that they already possess, you will become stronger and stronger and better and better through each adversity. Well, in your opinion, what kind of factors in the current world make people particularly vulnerable to what's happening around us? Yeah, what makes nowadays people very weak in the face of problems. And when you open the newspapers or you see the, we see the news, is an endless stream of lamentations that, oh, I couldn't do this, I couldn't do that. I was caught by surprise. I was not expecting this problem is that our sense of time has changed if we compare with previous generations. Now in the 21st century, I think all of us, by the time we get to be teenagers, we have an idea of time, of the future, which means a constant improvement. And we get the feeling that things will automatically get better, that we cannot fail, that little by little we're going to get what we want, with very few difficulties. This is a mentality of the 21st century that did not exist uh, 100 years ago. People were always quite wary of being comfortable because they knew that life is inherently risky and that you have to cover and you have to prepare for bad circumstances. You need to have a backup plan. You need to have resources. You need to have savings. The situation today where you have millions of people with virtually a zero savings, people who are pushing their health to the limit and they don't really take care and then they get severe problems. And this kind of mentality of always pushing to the limit, having no reserves, having no backup plan is typical of our century, is very risky. It puts people unnecessarily to very, very high risk and I think it's not to be recommended. The problem is that this is now so prevalent in our culture it is so present in the media 24 hours a day that it's very difficult to break out from it. One of the things that you mentioned is that we should be able to embrace certain types of disruptions. So what kind of disruptions do you think that we should embrace and what kind of disruptions do you think that we should either follow a different strategy using the lessons from the past or do something different about it? Like what's the difference between the two? Yeah, what I recommend in the book after going through all these stories is that you should steer away from disruptions that are certainly negative. You don't want to get into situations where you risk all your savings, you bet everything on one go 
or you have such a huge that you could be wiped out if the economy turns. These kind of approaches, they fail 99% of the time. So this is something you don't want to do. On the other hand, it is totally unrealistic to expect your life to be perfectly smooth. This is not the idea of the book. The book is not promising that if you do this one, two, three, four, five, everything's going to be fine. This is very unrealistic. But what is very important is to make the distinctions between uh, disruptions you need to have and disruptions that are obviously harmful. And let me give you an example. One of the situations where people actually need to go through disruptions because there is no other way is when you're stuck. When you're stuck professionally, financially, when your health is not improving, you need to change something. You need to go to some kind of disruptions because otherwise you are going to continue in the same situation and it's very difficult to improve. And one of the stories I present in the book, they found a super, um, I think it's a great example because it shows you the precise strategy to follow. It's the, the story of Albert Schweitzer. He was very famous in the 1950s, 1960s because he changed his life radically and he did it in a very clever way. I think his strategy is highly advisable because it shows you how to go through disruptions with little risk. Schweitzer was a professor at the University in Strasbourg in France. He was a professor of theology, very intellectual, very knowledgeable in his area, but he was also very unhappy. Schweitzer found himself, he was in his 30s. He didn't like his life. He found his job not very useful. He was a very profoundly convinced Christian. He wanted to do something else. And he developed the idea of changing his life to go through disruptions because he was unhappy. And in his situation, like many people who are stuck in their jobs, in their situation, they want to do something else, but they are afraid to change because they fear they might lose what already have. And this, this happens to a Schweitzer. Schweitzer had a very good position, had a very good job. He had a good income, but he was unhappy. And he developed the idea that he wanted to go to Africa and he wanted to help poor people. He wanted to carry out his dreams, but everybody told him he was crazy. He had spent 20 years building his career. His friends and his family told him, don't do it. You will destroy your life. And Schweitzer eventually did it. He became very successful, very famous. The question is how he did it, because he did not just jump blindly, went to Africa and then started to figure out what to do. He did it little by little. And the lesson from the story, and I'm going to now to go into the principle, is that uh, he always kept a plan B, a back approach he could always fall back to if he faced total disaster. And Schweitzer applied for a job to go to Africa as a missionary, and they told him, no, Professor Schweitzer, you're very clever, but uh, you have no skills. There's no way you can survive in Africa. Do you have no practical skills. You cannot help people because you are a professor. If you go to Africa, you will just die. So eventually, Schweitzer started some trainings. He went to a university. He got a degree in medicine. Four years later, he applied for the job again. And they told him this time, okay, you can go to Africa. He wanted to start a small hospital to help people. Now, the strategy is very clever, but the problem is that the risk was huge. The number of disruptions he had to go through, it's uh, difficult to imagine because he was going to a new continent. He had to face financial problems. Transportation was also quite challenging at the time. It took almost a week to get there. And eventually Schweitzer had to quit his job at the university. He could not go back because he had to resign. And the question is, what happened if the whole thing was a mistake? 
what happened if he was facing so many disruptions that he was going to fail. And he came up with a plan. This is something that people should take away from the story. When Schweitzer went to Africa, he always thought about, what if I fail? What if the whole thing is a disaster? What if I get sick? What if I lose all my skills and never able to recover? So what he did, and Schweitzer was a very prudent and very clever man, what he did was to cover his secondary skill. Schweitzer was a very passionate performer. He used to play music in the church every Sunday. He would play the organ in the cathedral. What he did said, look, if I go to Africa and everything is a disaster, if I fail in my dream, I can always go back and play music because he could play very well. He could always make some money playing music in the church. So eventually what he did when he went to Africa to practice medicine, he bought a secondhand upright piano. It was very cheap. He took the piano with him to Africa. And when he was there starting his hospital, he practiced every day for one hour on the piano. And he was playing music in the middle of nowhere in Africa. He was playing music one hour a day because he wanted to keep his skills. And he did it for years, for decades. He was in Africa. He was playing music every day because when he ran out of money, and this happened periodically, every few years he would run out of money, he would go back to Europe, play music. He would give concerts in cathedrals around Europe, and he raised money for his hospital, for his mission. With this strategy, which is a great lesson to learn, you can go through disruptions, you can go through changes, you can try new professions, uh, new business, uh, new approaches, but you should always have a plan B. You should always have a skill. You should always have an asset you can rely on because this will reduce your levels of stress. This will make you, I would think, more courageous because you know that even if you fail, even if it's a disaster, you can always survive. When you were telling the story, which I love the how he went about doing it. Now, one of the things that I have heard a lot of people say is you got you got to burn all the ships and you got to just go all in. Now, how does that land and what's your, I guess, what's your opinion of that approach? I think it's very romantic, but doesn't work. From time to time, you find an example of someone who did that and succeeded. It's very dangerous because you might find yourself out of a job or you might find yourself in a territory. You might find yourself in situations where it's very difficult to come back. It does not apply only to your career or your finances. It applies also to your health. You have to be careful with what you do and don't overextend yourself, which applies to your diet, applies to your lifestyle. It's very dangerous if you push things to the limit because you cannot always recover. You cannot always easily recover. And I also present in the book many stories of people who follow this strategy of just go for it, just do it, give it all you have. It is very dangerous. You put yourself in risk, sometimes risk you cannot even imagine because you all don't have visibility of the whole situation. And people go into these dreams, into these situations without really thinking of the consequences. You hear about the stories that are successful once in a while, but most of the time the risk is too high and people will fail. 
I'm 100% with you when you say that, and I'm not sure. Maybe it works for some people, but I've found that like even people who leave their jobs to go and do a business and without knowing the full picture and the, without realizing the full learning curve and the failures and the everything that you have to go through, you're just jumping with all two feet, and that's great. But most of the time, you've got things thrown at you that you don't see coming. So in cases like that, when you don't have another plan or when you don't have, I guess, the security or whatever the basic necessities of a person, most likely you become very needy and that shows up in whatever you're creating. And that itself is a risk as well because you've got too much writing on it as well. Yes, there are better ways to do that. And one of the stories I present in the book is the story of Joseph Paxton. He was a gardener in the late 19th century. He didn't have education. He was a very modest man, but eventually he became very wealthy. He became very famous. But he did it in a very transitional way. He went step by step developing skills. And this is the way I recommend. After going through all these examples, I advise people to follow these kind of examples. Let me just give you quickly the story of Paxton. I think it is very illustrative of this strategy. Paxton was living in the countryside in England. He didn't have education. He didn't have any schooling or very, very little. He could read, but that was that. He didn't have any intellectual background. And he started to work very early. He was 14 years old when he started to work as a gardener. So eventually, after a few years, he got a job into a big park in England. He would take care of the trees and he would do all of the things that gardeners do. But by the time he was 18, he had gone as far as he could go in his uh, career. There was no other job for gardeners. He was very limited. Without any education, without any degrees, he could not expect to get a better job or to start a business or to do anything. He was basically stuck. What did he do? And Paxton had the idea that he could improve himself. He could evolve into something better, but he was realistic. In the 19th century, the economy was very harsh. There was no unemployment insurance. There was no possibility to recover if you went bankrupt. It was very difficult to recover because the economy was quite difficult today because there was no internet. Everything was quite expensive. To go even to travel from one city to the other took substantial work and effort. So what Paxton did is to improve his skills little by little. So he tried to improve the park and to come up with some new designs, and he did very well, but he did not improve his career. He got some extra money from his employer, but he did not change anything. Uh, he was very curious. He was always trying to find ideas to improve, so he would subscribe to some gardening magazines. He read the newspapers every day. He would always try to find ideas to improve, but it was difficult. It was very hard. So eventually, by sheer persistence, he read into a magazine about uh, glass houses. Uh, glass houses, it was an innovation in the 19th century, and it was very interesting for parks, for gardening in the UK, because the winter is quite cold. What you can do with a glass house is to have plants, to have different uh, flowers that are quite uh, delicate, and you can keep them during the winter. Uh, and it's also quite nice to take a walk into a glass house in the winter. So what Paxton started to do was to he proposed to his employer to build a small glass house in the park. So he bought the materials, glass, some pillars. He put himself, he put it all together by hand and he built a small glass house. It was not very sophisticated. And he had a system for pumping water 
because what you do in a glass house basically is to you boil water and then you put pipes around the area so that it becomes warm. So in the end, uh, he built the glass house. His employer was happy and said, oh, it's a nice thing. Maybe you can have a bigger one. So little by little, it took him almost a decade. Paxton started to build bigger and bigger glass houses. He was known in the neighborhood that he could do this. And the risk for him was very small because he was a gardener. And to build glass houses was only a step away from his core expertise. And eventually he became quite not in the area, but he wanted to improve. He uh, got a small salary increase, but it was not enough. The guy was ambitious. He was clever. He read everything he could about his field, but still he was stuck. And by trying to develop his expertise, he would write uh, articles to the newspapers. He used to also write some small pieces for magazines. He started to make some contacts in the media. And eventually, when he was in his 40s, he saw an advertisement in a newspaper where they were asking for designs to put up a temporary building for an exhibition in London. It was an exhibition for industrial products. And they wanted to do it very quickly and they wanted to do it very inexpensively. So the architects in England, they submitted uh, different projects. But Paxton thought maybe we could build a glass house. Instead of doing a building of brick and mortar, he thought maybe we could make a, a big glass house. So he submitted also a design for this competition. And eventually, since his design was the cheapest and it was the fastest, he got a chance to do it. And he built this glass house in the middle of London, in you know, Hyde Park. And it became a very successful exhibition because he could actually deliver the project ahead of schedule under budget. And this made uh, Paxton very famous and very successful. And for the rest of his life, for the next 20 years, he became a consultant in park design and glass houses. And he actually built, as a designer, a lot of houses in the United Kingdom. He was hired by the Rothschild family to build summer houses. So this is the perfect example of a career development with little risk because Paxton could not afford to bet all his future on one card because he was a very uneducated person at the beginning. But little by little, by cultivating his skills, by trying different approaches, he found a way to become very successful and very wealthy. And this is the kind of strategy that when you go in history, and you look at hundreds of examples, this is the very best strategy, the lowest risk and the safest. And I think in 99% of the situations, this is the way to go because you would be able to minimize disruptions. that you share John are like just fascinating and I'm pretty sure our listeners are going to absolutely love what you have got in the book as well because I think you've got a lot more stories in the book than what you're saying as well just to quickly wrap up the point about low risk so one of the things that you keep talking about is the zero risk approach now are there any other simple steps that our listeners can take to have that zero risk approach and go through disruptions yes zero risk is not a guarantee it's an ideal if you could do everything with zero risk it would be perfect this is not realistic but as an ideal i think it would be the right thing to follow 
And Paxton had to take some risk because his uh, career development, his uh, glass houses, he made mistakes. Sometimes he made large mistakes and he had glass houses that were uh, quite a disaster. But it was almost zero risk because he did not have to go out of a limp to build the whole thing. One of the strategies that you find in people who go through a very successful career relatively, and saying relatively little risk, is that they try to put limits to the risk. And the best way to do it is to diversify. I'm not talking about diversify doing a million different things because this is the contrary of low risk. I'm talking about putting a limit to the different risk you do. Let me just give you an example. One of the best examples of diversification, and I prefer in the book, I use the word segmentation instead of diversification, because diversification gives you the idea that you have to do many different things. I use segmentation because the approach for the risk limitation is basically to divide your resources or your time in segments in different areas and to try to put a risk limit on each of them. And I got uh, this uh, idea of uh, segmentation from a manager from the 19th century. His name was uh, Robert Stephenson. And Stephenson was a financier. He was financing different businesses in the UK. He was basically working on railroads, but he also did uh, bridges. He did uh, different businesses. And Stephenson found himself close to bankruptcy when he was in his 30s because he made a few mistakes in a project. He was not very experienced in company law. So he thought he was starting a limited company, but in the end, he signed papers and then he discovered it was not a limited company, it was a partnership. By the time he really realized the problem, it was too late because the company was losing money in a partnership. The partners are liable for the debts of the company 100%. So he had a huge debt and it took him five years to get out of the problem. Eventually, he managed to transform the partnership into a limited company and to reduce the risk. But he learned the lesson. He learned the lesson and for the next 50 years, he followed this principle of segmentation. And segmentation consists of dividing your assets or dividing your time in different segments and to put a limit on each of them. So Robert Stephenson took this principle to the limit. For instance, in order to reduce the stress and to reduce the anxiety that goes together with having a lot of investments, a lot of projects, Stephenson uh, used to segment his days in a very strict manner. He would wake up in the morning, he would spend two hours every morning reading or studying or learning different things because he wanted to continue uh, his personal development. And then he would break down the day in different segments. He would have uh, the morning, would have four meetings, and then he would have the afternoon to answer his uh, letters. Then he would have the evening to review financial statements. So he would allocate for each activity a specific time. He also left some margins in his day. But in this way of segmenting uh, his time and segmenting his resources, he did exactly the same for each company. When he created uh, a new company, he incorporated a different company, a different limited liability company, he went through a process which was very standardized. And in this way, by segmenting his activities and segmenting his risk, he managed to go through this career very successfully because from time to time, he had one of the segments or one of the companies go south. They would lose money and he would have to close down the company or to declare a bankruptcy. But all the rest of his structure was perfectly sound. 
by segmenting his activities, segmenting his time, he was able to go through this very successful career with relatively low levels of stress and relatively low levels of risk. And this is one of the great ideas in the book. You don't need to do many different things, but what you do, you should segment, break down your activity, you should break down your risk into little pieces so that you can put a ceiling of risk in each of them. And in this way, if one of the pieces, one of the segments is not working properly, you can address the problem specifically without having to propagate the problem into other segments. And this principle is something that I think everybody should adopt. There are people who are running their risk in a way that they easily propagate to all areas of your life. One of the principles of good investment, of good management is to segment the risk, to segment your activities, to segment your time so that you are always under control. Well, John, I want to switch gears into talking a little bit about you and how you have been doing this work. Because one of the things that you mentioned early on in our conversation is that you've been writing one book a year. That's pretty impressive. And you also said that this new book, Undisrupted, you started writing it like three years ago. Is there like a time frame that you give yourself or how do you know when it's the time to write a new book? Yeah, this is because I work backwards. And let me explain this because when people told you, oh, I write a book, I write a book, usually what they do is the first they come up with the idea and then they present, they make some research and then they put it together. And this is, for me, it's not feasible. It's just too slow. I work in a different way. I work backwards. So what I do is I read a lot, go through different ideas. I read books, magazines, newspapers, blogs. So I read all kinds of stuff and I listen also to podcasts and I'm always getting new ideas. For instance, for this book, I got the idea three years ago because I was reading a biography. So I took note and then I continue to read, I continue to do research. But at a certain point, once a year, when I decide uh, to write a new book, then I go through my notes. And sometimes they are five years old or 10 years old. I go through my notes. I put together the material and then I can write a book. So it's a different process because for me, the books have to grow organically. I don't want to spend the time looking for new ideas. I have more ideas than I need. It's just because I'm always reading and always gathering material. So for me, it's very easy to put together the book. It's not so easy to write because writing takes a lot of effort. Sometimes I rewrite the book three, four, five times until I'm happy with the result. But the process is backwards. I always start gathering ideas. Sometimes years ago, I have a lot of material for future books. For me, the effort goes into the writing, into the structuring of the ideas, to put together all the stories, to make sure that they are readable, they are easy to read. And this is the way I follow the process. This is why you say, okay, one book a year looks quite impressive, but actually the writing takes a year. The research and the concepts for the book, sometimes they are 10 years old. Wow. Okay. How did you become interested in history and the lessons that we can take from history and try to apply them into our lives right now? How did that come about? It happened out of sheer frustration because for decades I've been reading a lot of books about personal development, success and this kind of stuff. But little by little, I became quite frustrated, dissatisfied with the kind of books I could find, because most of them, I find them very unrealistic. The advice you get is very vague, is very fluffy, very impractical. Uh, and I started to focus more on history because I find it more reliable. 
I really like to go through real stories, to go through real people, to see what they did and to draw the lessons. I think it's much more practical. So I started to write now 11 years ago, I started to write the kind of books I could not find. I wish I could have found these books in the market, but nobody was doing this. Nobody was doing this because, okay, it's something that combines my personal interest. And in the end, I put together my interest in history and my interest in personal development. And I came up with this kind of books that really fulfill the idea that I want to have practical advice, but I want to have realistic advice. So I want to have only stories that are real. I want to have principles drawn from history. I don't want to read books that present ideas that are not based on facts. study biographies and books about history and how things are done, do you find things that you would look at them and go, oh, actually, it probably worked back then, but it probably wouldn't work now? Do you find cases like that? When you go into the principles, this is very unusual because the human behavior of human problems, they're basically the same through the centuries. The technology is different because today we have mobile phones, we have high-performance cars, we have different technology. But the problems are the same. And this is why in this book and also in the previous books, I go through stories from different centuries, from different countries and different cultures, because I think that the principles are universal. If they are good principles, if they are sound principles, they apply in all situations. Let me just give you an example. One of the stories I analyze in the book, in this latest book, is about the construction of cathedrals in the Middle Ages. We are talking now 11th century, so it's 1,000 years ago. And I found the story fascinating because it solves problems that we have today. When people have to build these cathedrals in the Middle Ages, and we are talking about Gothic cathedrals, they are very, very high buildings, and they have to deal with a lot of disruptions. They have to deal with extremely cold weather. They have to deal with the technology issues because it was very difficult to put together such high walls. The risk of having the building collapse was very high. And eventually in the 11th century, it was one uh, monk, his name was Suger, he was living in the north of France. Uh, Suger figured out how to put all the resources together to build these cathedrals fairly quickly. He could build the cathedral in 15 years. And the way he did it, and I think the principle is the same today in the 21st century, the way he did it is to make a list of all the issues he knew, all the disruptions, the cold weather, the technology issues, you have to imagine that in the Middle Ages, very few people could read. You had uh, hundreds of workers, and uh, they were speaking different languages, and they could not read. You could not even transfer the information. You could not even tell people what to do because you have to explain visually. Otherwise, you could not even get through to them. And Suger put together a system allowing people, allowing his workers. He had about 100 employees during these 15 years to allow them to work without disruptions during the whole year, no matter what. What Suger figured out is that the main reason for the disruptions is that people, they could not really work quietly, they could not work smoothly. So he built houses for the workers. The first thing he did, instead of building the cathedral, he built houses for his hundred people so that he was sure they were not going to leave. He wanted to have them together for 15 years. And he allowed them to work inside, indoors, during the winter, 
and only outdoors during the summer, so they could be productive 100% uh, of the time, which was very unusual in the Middle Ages. So when it was freezing outside, the workers would be working indoors, repairing the stones, cutting the stones for the cathedral. And when the weather was fine, they go outdoors and they could build the cathedral. And this is the perfect principle, the perfect recipe for the 21st century. If you're running a company, you're running a business, or you are practicing a profession, the last thing you want is to be constantly blocked by circumstances. If you are planning to talk to a customer, to talk to a client, and he's not available, you always want to do like they did in the Middle Ages. You want to have a system, a method of work that allows you to move forward no matter what. So the workers of Surgier uh, in the 11th century, if they couldn't work outdoors, they could work indoors. If they could not do A, they could do B, but there was always progress. They were always pushing forward. So in the end, through this methodology, Suger managed to build these cathedrals in 15 years, because otherwise it would have taken uh, centuries. And this is a very important principle. It is the same today as it was in the Middle Ages. When you're running a business, when you're running any kind of operation, you need to develop a system of work that allows you to progress even if circumstances are not with you. And this is uh, something that is one of the main lessons from the book. Very few people realize today that this is the right way to go. Well, John, I would love to keep you long and talk, you know, listen to more and more of the stories because they are absolutely fascinating and there's a lot that we can take from it. I just want to ask you, like, what would be the best advice that you've been given throughout your entire career of writing books and learning, taking these lessons and gifting it back to the world? If I have to leave your listeners with just one idea, is that you should always be looking at the end game. And this is an advice I got from a chess player, because when you are developing a career, you're developing a business, it's too easy to get completely overwhelmed by today's problems. But this is not the way to do it. You have to look at the end game. Like you do, when you're playing chess, you always try to figure out what the situation, what the position is going to look after half an hour, two hours, three hours. You want to look at the end game because this is what is going to break or make your game. If you have a very strong position in the end game, you are almost sure to win in chess. And it is the same in life. When you're doing something which is uh, quite difficult, quite complex, you are going into a new career, you're starting a business, you are improving your health, you're improving your shape. You have to look at the end game and you have to focus on the end game. If you focus on the progress today, which might be very, very small, you might even go backwards from time to time, you will become discouraged very easily. You have to focus on the end game. This is the best advice I ever got. I try to remind myself of this every day. Look at the end game, look at what is going to happen in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years, and this is the right way to go because then you will make the best possible decisions. Well, what would you say is the worst advice you've been given? Yeah, the worst advice I've been given is to put all my resources in one area, to say what you just mentioned earlier today, go for it, put everything together and just risk everything. Thank God I never did it completely. But this was really horrible advice. And when people are asked to take a huge amount of risk and to put everything on one card, I think it's horrible advice. Unfortunately, you hear it 24 hours a day on the media. It's horrible advice. Don't pay any attention because I think people don't know what they're talking about. 
Well, if you could go back to the beginning of your journey, what would you change about how you did things if you could? The main change I would make is to try to be more patient. Because when I started, for instance, when I started to write books, I used to get uh, very impatient because uh, I could not really write clearly. It took a lot of effort to correct. You have to edit. Sometimes I have to rewrite a page uh, 10 times. And I was growing very impatient because I got the idea that it was easy, that it should be natural to write in a very consistent way. And this was very unrealistic. It takes a lot of time to develop skills if you want to write books or you want to do whatever. You have to be patient with yourself. And this is something that is very difficult to acquire because uh, in our time, uh, we want to have everything done immediately. We want to have now, now, now. But when you are developing skills, I mean, imagine you are learning a new language and you're learning, I don't know, French or you're learning German. It takes time to get used to learn the language. And you can learn the new language in a couple of years, but you have to be patient. You have to work at it uh, every day. If you become very impatient, you will quit too early. So the advice I would give myself if I was uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, is to be more patient and to be more realistic about uh, what it takes to do something complex. Well, what's one thing that you've learned about yourself throughout all of these years? Yeah, basically, I think the main lesson is that I learned to concentrate on my strongest areas. Because at the beginning, I mean, like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I used to try to do too many things to try to start too many projects. I became time more focused on the few things that I know I want to do in the long term, uh, the few areas that they're my core expertise, and I try to get rid of everything else. And this takes a lot of discipline, self-discipline to do this kind of stuff. But if you try to start too many projects to do too many things, basically you're wasting your time. I think all of us need the reflection, the self-reflection to identify our core skills, our core interests, and to cultivate those. You cannot really do everything in life. Time is limited. You have to focus on your main assets. John, it has been lovely having you on the show, and thank you so much for everything that you shared. I did not feel uh, time passing, to be honest, because I loved all the stories. Now, for the folks in our audience who would like to find out more about you, more about your work, and get hold of your book, Undisrupted, can you please tell us how to do that? Yeah, it's extremely easy to find me, to find my books and my materials. It's very easy to find if you just type John Vespasian on Google. Even if you misspell my name, doesn't matter because Google will correct you. If you type John Vespasian, you will find everything in one second. You find the books. They're available in Amazon. They're available in different outlets. You'll find my free blog. There is also a free newsletter. It's very easy to find. Just type John Vespasian on Google and you'll find everything in one second. Great. Thank you so much, John. Is our episode for today. I hope that you found it valuable. As always, go check out show notes at vindiav.com to get the summarized version of the podcast. And please go grab a copy of John's newest book, Undisrupted How Highly Effective People Deal with Disruptions. Until I meet you next time, keep at it in your extraordinary journey.